Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bedard, the fanfic A Deeper Season by Light Gets In and Sahir, and the pilot episodes of Farscape and Killjoys. And welcome to episode 35. Well, Canaveral, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. I'm Alex, and I'm Moya from Farscape. I'm Freya, and I'm Justice of Torrin from Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice series. I'm Macy, and I am Lucy from Killjoys. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about space operas. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> uh, adventures in space and some probably some military matters in space and so forth. And romance. And romance, but in space. But in space. Uh, but in space. That's, that's really the key part of space opera. But we're gonna we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Uh, first of all, before anything else, uh, what are we reading, fellow servants? I've been on a little bit of a romance kick this week. I have been reading a series that is probably the grown-up equivalent of all of the stage children books that I read as a kid. I was very into all those stories about children at ballet school and children at performing <laughs> arts school because I was. Super into Noel Stretfield, the British children's writer. And this series by Lucy Parker, who's a New Zealand romance author, uh, is called the London Celebrities Romance Series. It is all tragically heterosexual, but mm. extremely enjoyable. And it's about various people involved in the London theatre and TV and film scenes. So there's like a fake dating one between two Broadway stars who have to get good publicity for their play. And there's one between like a young, fluffy, you know, musical theatre actress and the critic who is really harsh about her. And there's all these like really fun recurring characters and plots to do with your career as a makeup artist or your career <laughs> in, in film and what your agent's doing to try and get you more jobs. And it's just very bubbly and sarcastic and enjoyable. I just really want nice. to send you, like, One Direction fanfic now. No. <laughs> I mean, I won't, I won't say for sure that I have never actually read One Direction fanfic, and if you are thinking of the fake dating one, I have read that one. I'm thinking of the large number of them which ship the floppy-haired one with the Ryan something or other, the radio presenter. It's very, like, show business of London and going on TV shows and yes, stuff I like that. Yes, I have read the fake dating one for that ship. Yeah, I yep. can't remember See? the title, but it's really good. <laughs> See, anyway, we will, we will task our scribes. <laughs> what have you been reading, Macy? Poor scribes. <laughs> I have been reading very little. Um, I well, it's only been a week since it's we recorded the last Freya, episode. How the fuck have you read more books? Um, they're romance novels. They take like two hours. <laughs> I read four of them yeah. this week. Yeah, that's fair. Whereas most evenings <laughs> this true. week, I've gotten home, sat on my sofa and fallen asleep at five in the afternoon um, and then got up and done my edits because I am in edit hell. But yes, I mean, sometimes you just you just have a week of naps and yeah. that's valid. It's, it's been it's been a week, but I did yeah. watch a few episodes of this delightful television show called Monty Don's Italian Gardens, which everyone Ooh. should immediately go and watch like the middle chunk of the second episode because it's all about this 
lesbian Romanian garden princess, Princess Gika. That's all the things you like, And, like, how she, like, in the late 1800s, revitalized an interest in Italian Renaissance gardens. Cool. It's adorable. That's all your favorite things. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have uh, mostly been watching things uh, this week. Uh, we were really only supposed to watch the pilot episode of Farscape, but I went ahead and watched a couple more because uh, it's been a while since <laughs> I rewatched. Uh, I also found this new Chinese drama called Detective L, which is a Sherlock Holmes retelling. It's basically elementary, mm. set in 1920s Shanghai. So it has a male Sherlock and a female Watson. And uh, she is spunky and a rookie cop who has just gotten hired. And she's a badass and she punches guys. <laughs> and uh, the Sherlock character is played by the same guy who played the ghost cop in Guardian. Oh, no. Does <laughs> oh, he have no. like gritty facial hair again? Yeah, I was going to say, does he have a better face, facial hair a little situation? A little bit. I mean, oh it's, it's not as bad as in Guardian, but he's still, he looks basically the same as he did in Guardian, just in like 1920s suit with a hat. In Guardian, this gentleman had, uh, you know how there's like a particularly, particular classical Chinese era in which it was a great compliment to say that you had eyebrows like moths? Yeah. This dude yeah. has a moth mustache. <laughs> <laughs> he a little bit does. <laughs> he a little bit does. Uh, I've also read uh, Dirasudis's new Witcher fanfic, Quid Pro Quo, um, which she posted super fast. She has posted like four chapters in four days, which is incredible. Um, I am I am pretty enjoying it. Uh, you know, like I, I really admire a lot of Dirasudis's work, and this one's pretty good. Uh, and also, I have literally like half an hour before we started <laughs> recording this episode, I just finished revising my manuscript. So yay, hey. that's what I spent most of my week on. Let's do the episode because that's all I have to talk about. Yes, let's do the episode. So this episode is one where I'm going to ask my traditional defining terms question mm. a little bit more sincerely than usual because. I don't feel like I have a real, like, heart emotion level understanding of this one. So I'm going to be leaning on you two to tell me what is a space opera. You're saying you don't have metis about space opera. I do not. Right? I have no metis about cool. space opera. When I thought about this question, I, I ended up telling myself, well, like pornography, I feel like I know it when I see it. <laughs> but I wasn't quite sure how I That's would go around wrapping words correct. around it. So I went right. to Wikipedia to look up where the term actually came from. And discovered something mm -hmm. I didn't know, which is that it actually has its origins in the 40s. And it was originally a derogatory mm. term used to describe sort of very pulpy, formulaic, you know, adventures in space, things, you know, shooting things, a bit of military, some adventures, some planetary romance, and, you know, spaceships and all of that. And it was used mm -hmm. to describe a sort of emerging genre of very same, same kind of radio dramas and serialized stories. And it has definitely a changed a lot in since space. then. But I thought it was interesting that it's been embraced as something that we all, like nobody would use it as a derogatory term now. Right. Right, it just is the term. Exactly. And I was thinking about that, especially this week, because of the Twitter kerfuffle, which I do not know if you guys saw or not. Yes, but I did. But Ian McEwan, bless his literary heart in the most joy. southern sense of the term, uh, decided to make a tweet about what you know his new book, which is essentially a, a book about AI, and 
he has this feeling that there is a space for authors to explore, not, you know, science fiction, which is all about battles in space, but, you know, the big questions like the nature of humanity, and then the entire science fiction and fantasy genre came down on him with and the weight of a thousand sarcastic bricks. Yep. <laughs> <sighs> uh, yeah, it, it was, was pretty a whole glorious thing. to watch. It was pretty, it was a lot, you know, and... I have had a lot of interactions in my life where a literary fiction author has, this has happened to me personally, I have witnessed this like a thousand times, has found some way to denigrate or dismiss genre as lesser or like, oh, you write books for kids? Well, no, I write books for grownups in space. <laughs> um, and this kind of fits in with that pattern of finding ways to be dismissive of speculative fiction. Well, in fairness, it's also a thing that white dudes do. Like, you look at some of the stuff around young adult dudes being like, I'm going to invigorate and make thoughtful this new genre of young adult. Unlike yep. all yep. those other people who clearly haven't been doing that. Hmm. And it happens It happens to the romance genre as well, right. uh, where a man will be like, oh, I will tell, like, I'm telling a romantic story, but it's not a romance. Hmm. It's not one of those, like, dirty sex books. Well, let's talk then a little bit about what is space opera? What does it come to mean and be? If we're going to talk about the definition of space opera, we might as well uh, read the definition that was on Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, which was put by David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer in their two 2006 book, The Space Opera Renaissance. Uh, they define space opera as, quote, colorful, dramatic, large-scale science fiction adventure, competently and sometimes beautifully written, usually focused on a sympathetic, heroic central character and plot action, and usually set in the relatively distant future, and in space or on other worlds characteristically optimistic in tone. It often deals with war, piracy, military virtues, and the very large-scale action, large stakes. Hmm. That's interesting, because listening to it, I, can, I was nodding along to about half of it, and there are some, a few words in there that I think you know, given that this was 13 years ago, have already become not quite right with what we think of as modern space opera. Such as? Um, I think the sympathetic heroic central character is no longer necessarily the case, especially because a lot of space opera is ensemble. That's fair. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of, you know, military virtues and enormous stakes, I have some things to say about this a little bit lower down, but yeah, I think necessarily the size of the stakes is not quite as important as the size of the universe. Huh. Mm, okay. Okay. It has like a sense of, of scope in some in some way. Yes, yeah? but the scope of it, but the stakes of the story may not necessarily be the fate of a space empire. It might mm. just be, will this group of smugglers deliver their shit or not? Right, right, right. totally. Right. And that's reminding me of then the comedy space opera that my friend Valerie Valdez has coming out, which is all about one space smuggler captain trying to rescue her popsicle Is that the sister. one that has cats in space? Yes, I was on literally the cover? about to ask that question. I saw that cover and was like, oh my God. The cover cats, cats in space. It's <laughs> so beautiful. And it's a really, it's, yes. Yeah. What, what was the, oh, the title escapes me, but I'm sure we'll learn. It's called it. Chilling Effect. There we go. Yes. Chilling Effect. Um, but it's not Fate of Empire's stakes, except maybe accidentally, but it's definitely mm. space opera. Or even the um, the the ones that always get talked about as cosy space opera. You talk about Becky Chambers's books? Yes. 
I feel I have noticed a pattern looking at the transcripts for the past few weeks that I'm just the person who's like, here's the thing you're thinking of. <laughs> I'm like, Don't Siri. ask me to think this week, people. This is my scheduled nap time. We, we, we got you, boo. We got you. We got you. Yeah. So I'm thinking about also Becky Chambers uh, books, which are space opera, but are not, like you say, Freya, uh, empire spanning stakes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, J.Y. Yang also gave us a really cool definition on Twitter. Uh, space opera is science fiction that also majored, majored in the humanities, physics and biology, but also sociology and history, which I think is quite apt. Yes, and this was originally from uh, me flailing around in one of my ridiculously large number of DMs. Um, and I really like this idea that when you are world building a space opera you're building societies not just spaceships yeah yeah but i think you do have to have the spaceship so if you're thinking again about slightly old-fashioned genre terms mm -hmm. there's the idea of planetary romance mm -hmm. as a genre which is not actually capital r romance but it's the things like Le Guin, mccaffrey about other worlds and other planets but the entirety of the action and the story takes place on that planet the traveling between planets and the spaceship aspect is not actually important. So that's not space opera? No, it's that's a different. different. Thing. Okay, I would say cool. that you have to have spaceships for it to be space opera. That's fair. Pern is not a space opera, even in the bits with spaceships. No, Pern is a planetary romance. Yes, Once, once we admit that it's on a planet. So uh, let's move on and talk about some tent poles, I think. Yes. Unless, did you guys have anything else to say about definitions and so forth? Oh, I had a very tongue-in-cheek definition, which oh, yes, came, tell us actually that. came into my head after watching the, some of the tent poles, which was space opera is what you get when you ask somebody of these three aesthetics, which is your favorite? And they answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Jupiter ascending as a space opera. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's this idea that you can have multiple planets and multiple settings. And so you can just be like, what do I feel like today? A gritty trade planet? Okay. Do I yes. feel like a fancy party? <gasps> okay. And you can oh. just keep setting things on different things. And obviously, when we talk a little bit more about um, the Vorkosigan saga, I would argue that Bujol did that essentially. Mm. Which aesthetic yes. do I like? Well, all of them. So I'm going to write a book for each. Unless, of course, you are Stargate Atlantis, in which case your answer to aesthetic is pine trees. That's true. Correct. True. Because true. the other way that you can tell if a TV show is a space opera is it was filmed in Vancouver. I was just about to ask who put that <laughs> dot point on this thing because I saw well, it and I started laughing. The first tent yes. pole of the episode is one that actually goes against the Vancouver rule. And that's oh. why it's good, you know? <laughs> so we watched, we actually have technically four tent poles for this we got episode. a little bit extra we got a little bit extra because the first two um i think are quite closely related and we wanted to talk about them in conversation with mm -hmm. one another mm -hmm. so the first tent pole is the pilot episode of farscape Yay. which was a mid-90s to early noughties science fiction show which is not filmed in vancouver but was filmed in australia it Space is one is of australia. the only shows and that you nobody watch. died of spiders no, well, you know, they may have, but <laughs> they may have just covered them in latex and been like, look, a science fiction corpse. <laughs> this explains so much about Australia. <laughs> the few, few shows where, which are speculative where everybody has an Australian accent to yep. one extent or another. Sometimes they are faking an American accent. Sometimes they've clearly just been told, talk alien. 
and have pulled, pulled an accent out of their ass, God knows where. But I enjoy it for that reason. It's a good show, Brent. It's a, it's it's a, good, a good show. show so the basic premise is that there is a NASA scientist astronaut who uh, basically yeeted himself. Yeeted himself through a portal by he is experimenting <laughs> with a way to make spaceships go faster by slingshotting off the atmosphere of a planet. He accidentally yeets himself through a portal. Yep, we're going to use that terminology now. Science yeeting. And finds himself in a far, far, far off galaxy <laughs> and stuck on a prison transport ship that has just been taken over by a small group of convicts who have then escaped from the peacekeepers, which are the sort of military empire equivalent. And it's about the adventures of this group of misfits on the living ship called Moya. And obviously, as the series goes on, there's a lot of interlocking arcs and the stakes and the scope get a lot higher. But it's a very classic sort of found family adventure story with a lot of Muppets in it. Yes. There's so many Muppets in this show. And also lots of wormholes. So you just get like continual yeeting in all directions. I was just about to ask someone to use the word yeet again. Thank you so much. And like <laughs> Moya uh, can also yeet herself without a, a wormhole at all. It's great. It's, it's a great. good show. Technical yeah. term. Technical term. Yep. yep. And I, what, I, what I love about Farscape is it's, it's dedication to weird and yes. like the idea that you see these aliens and they look a bit weird and they have weird bodily functions and weird fluids and mm-hmm. they fart helium mm-hmm. and everything's a little bit disgusting at all times. It's very much not sterile and it's not dry <laughs> military. It's no. always a little bit squishy and odd. And then they turn to to Crichton, the human, and like find ways to think that he's weird. Um, yeah. And like you is. don't want to clean your teeth with this weird bug thing. Like... Okay. That's not that, very hygienic. That's not very hygienic to just scrub with a toothbrush. Like, ew. Yeah, there's like breeding on that thing. And then the later seasons where there's that like weird uh, bondage dream sequence thing. It is a deeply strange show. It has an animated episode. It has like continual dream sequence slash alternate reality, like complete crack. It's very, very strange, but I love it. It's one yes. of my favorite science fiction shows. Uh, who put this note? I don't even know. Who is Magnus Burnside's? Uh, <laughs> oh, he's from I have a dot point here uh, saying, does Dargo remind anyone else of Magnus Burnside's? And having watched a couple more episodes, no, he does not. Uh, it was just sort of a thought that I had as I was watching the pilot episode, and it means absolutely nothing. It's from The Adventure Zone, Macy. It's a good <laughs> podcast, and you should listen to it. It has so many hours in it. Oh, yes, yeah. it like has so only, many hours. Only like sixty three for the first God. arc. Anyway, fine. everything's fine. I am I am seizing the reins. Yeah, Macy, tell I, us about Killjoys, this show that you have been trying to get me to watch for literally years. Was I was I correct? You were correct. The, I really enjoyed the pilot. It it's is a good show. It's a good show, Brent. Yes, all they're all good shows. Brent. They're all good shows, Brent. Anyway, um, let's forcefully unyeeting this podcast. Um, I disagree. <laughs> I'm going to keep that. This is the word of the episode. I'm sorry, friends. Yep. <laughs> so um, the second of our two space opera TV tent poles this week is the Killjoys pilot. And Killjoys is a space opera focused on a badass ninja warrior princess bounty hunter and her adopted brother slash tech nerd 
who has an actual real brother who got himself into some trouble and has to be rescued in episode one. And there's a lot of spaceships, a lot of much better CGI, because Mm. this is like five years old as a show, as opposed to 20 years old, like Farscape. So lots of nice, flashy, computer-generated, like, planetary entrance sequences that look vaguely convincing. And yeah, like, different planets with very different aesthetics from one another. There's the party high sort of high nobility planet and then there's the mine town um planet as well and it's a it's fun because you get to go in between those different aesthetics and have different types of adventures across them in terms of these two shows um they have a few obviously like very immediately obvious similarities in terms of how they're doing the tropes what are some variations that you see between them in terms of how they're pulling off the space opera tropes or the sort of related tropes? Killjoys is much more science yep. right? It's much more clean. I think it's what you were saying, Freya, earlier about the squishiness. Yeah, about as squishy as they get is, oh, look, some men are beating each other up bloodily in an arena. Yeah. Right, you know, oh, no. Lots of, lots of aluminum, to quote an Alex pronunciation of that word (laughs) i was confused for a second i was like no that's the normal way to pronounce that word (laughs) listen friend you are outnumbered by the commonwealth aluminium aluminium freya what are your thoughts (laughs) the most obvious difference in how they go about introducing the tropes for me is that farscape is a portal fantasy quite Mm -hmm. literally Mm yep we are given the everyman character and he is shot into this new world and everything is weird to him because everything is weird to us and you see mm. him slowly get introduced to things whereas Killjoys just plunges you in because for everybody in the world this is the world. Yes. There is no sense that there is someone who is a newcomer to this. We're brought straight into Dutch's world and she's the central character and you get this really nice drip drop of how does her job work? Who does she right. work with? What's her sort of immediate life like? What's her backstory? Obviously lots of backstory mystery. Uh, but it's not got the same sense of normal person shoved into alien weirdness. Right. It kind of expects you to understand a lot about the setting already because it's got a lot of parallels with Firefly in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, It's Mm. this very similar sort of somewhat Western-derived thing. A lot of the planets are very much like American early West. But it's also very human. And Farscape is very alien. That's true for this season for this season i think that it's interesting to pick to the pilot episodes specifically of two shows that Mm -hmm. were separated by almost 20 years because you can kind of see how the discourse has evolved since Mm -hmm. then in terms of not so much like the like political discourse but in terms of how the show relates to the audience because farscape it is a portal fantasy, but it's a portal fantasy because it feels like it has to explain more things to the audience. Whereas Killjoys kind of assumes that it, its audience now, after 20 years, has more of a baseline understanding of sci-fi. We get, we have like many, many more wonderful sci-fi shows than we did back in um, 1999. And people are more familiar with some of the baseline tropes like spaceships or mm. uh, faster than light travel and so forth. Hmm. You know, I'm also thinking a little bit of Farscape alongside the aliens of Babylon 5 mm. and the very squishy stuff we do get there with the, what's it, the Vorlons in their suits? I haven't and seen the big, Babylon the 5. The big, like, massive um, environmental suits they have to wear and mm. Delenn 
transforming into a human and having to deal with weird hygiene issues and all of this stuff <laughs> it's very much in conversation and i think you might be right about some of the differences that we see between farscape and killjoys are a question of the shift in time yeah mm. and killjoys just feels a bit cleaner and snappier in terms mm -hmm. of its beats yes because i think farscape as a show just from watching the pilot of killers i think farscape has a very high tolerance for chaos yes and it shows you that by throwing somebody into a very chaotic situation and expecting you to just kind of keep up and start that's... picking up on cues yeah i think that's definitely true i think um killjoys feels more like it has a map mm. Yes. Farscape does not have a map. No, no. Farscape, Farscape had a map one time. To make it one set out on of jello fire while drunk. It set it on fire and then Dargo ate it. Yep. True. True. Such <laughs> a good show. It's a good show, show, but yes, mm. they are. Uh, would... Shall we move on to the next tentpole? Yes. Would you like to introduce that one, Alex? I would love to introduce this one. Uh, so the fanfic tentpole for this week is A Deeper Season by Light Gets In, which is a Vorkosigan fanfic. Uh, yes, my Vorkosigan kick has been continuing thanks to this, <laughs> this fanfic. Um, we can gush forever about this fanfic, but I want to explain this fanfic by telling you a short nostalgic anecdote about the first time <laughs> I read it. I think it was you, Macy, who recommended this fic to me, and I took one look at the pairing and went, I'm not sure about this, <laughs> because the the central romantic pairing of this ship, er, it, sh bleh, the central bleh. romantic pairing of this fic is Gregor and Miles, and I just don't know if I'm into that, but Macy was like, no, 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 trust me. Just go with it. And I did. And I'm glad that I did because Miles, as it turns out, starts off the fic also not being entirely yeah. sure if he ships it. Miles is fairly sure that he has no idea what's happening and why. Yes, yes. So the the fic author kind of like has this proposal and she is convincing the reader at the same time that Gregor is kind of convincing Miles uh, that they should go off on this crazy journey together, uh, metaphorically. <clears throat> so the actual plot of the fic is that uh, Gregor confesses that he has feelings for Miles and gives Miles an opportunity to like run away to a different planet and like have some space uh, mm -hmm. on a different planet uh, to think about it. In space, right? Because it's space opera, so you got to give your person space. Hey. Um Freya is very displeased with both of us right now. Yes, Freya is. <laughs> Freya's just looking tired. <laughs> it's been a long morning for Freya already. <laughs> I have been awake and active for a long time. Oh. And while on this, this other planet, Miles falls, as Miles does, face first into some plot. Mm -hmm. uh, and which involves uh, the uterine replicators uh, that are quite common in the Vorkoskin verse and androgenesis, which is a way for to use a uterine replicator to uh, ha let two men have a child together without having to construct an egg, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how it works. It's science. Um, <laughs> and there are setagandans and explosions and spies. Yeah. Uh, and it is a really fantastic fic. There's a walkway being shot out from underneath them. They have to run along and try to like jump into a flying speeder driven by the emperor. Yeah. And, yeah there's lots of like pew pew. Yeah. Oh, lots yes. of pew pew. And I think that in terms of space opera tropes, Vorkosigan, of course, is a classic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it it stays, well, 
it not all of the books. I think we were having this argument a couple a couple <laughs> episodes ago about whether every Vorkosikan book is a space opera book because it's not. Um, some of them are like straight up romance novels, honestly, mm. like uh, a civil campaign. Um, but this one, I think, is a fairly classic kind of kind of space opera. You have the the big scope, you have the pew pew, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Mm. I think because Miles and Miles's family are so entrenched in the higher aristocracy and involved with the fates of empires and have these high level, essentially political and military maneuvering jobs. Right. The stakes become quite big in all of the Volkosian books because they're sent on, like Miles is sent on missions of importance to the Empire. Right. And so yes. everything does have big stakes and it's not just about um, interpersonal things. Although I do appreciate that the relationship in this one is a Hufflepuff aggressively Hufflepuffing a Slytherin into a relationship. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> like using maneuvering techniques. It's delightful. And I think maybe Gregor is like the most powerful Hufflepuff I've met in fiction. I think I yeah. would agree. He's like Maya, except if from the Goblin Emperor, except if yes. Maya had been trained to it from a puppy. And yes. yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I feel like I'm still not always convinced that there that Maya's quite. I'm never sure if I believe Hufflepuff for him quite. I also want to believe that Gregor has a much more possibility for a vicious streak in him than Maya does. Like, Maya yes. always comes across to me as, like, a soft boy, capital S, capital B, right? And Gregor has softness to him, but he is not a soft boy. That's That I would agree with, and I think that's probably better for this much power. I think so, yeah. Like, you have to be able to make some, like, hard, mean decisions to right. control a space emperor, a space empire like Gregor does. Shall we finish off with our last of our four tent poles for this yes, week? please, yes. and then we'll discuss <clears throat> more things. Yes, I'm very glad we had a chance to read this because this was one of my favorite reads of last year. So our final tent pole is a novella by Aliet de Bodard uh, set in her Julia universe, and it is called mm-hmm. The Tea Master and the Detective. This is a Sherlock Holmes retelling where John Watson is actually a mind ship called the Shadow's Child who has PTSD from the war and is now getting by brewing tea, which is essentially mind-altering drugs for (laughs) people in order to help them survive the effects of going into space and going into what they call deep spaces on Mm -hmm. the human mind. Uh, And she is running out of money. She is a bit sullen. She's not very social. Um, And into her life walks Long Chow, who is a scholar and quite abrasive and wants to help (laughs) to find a corpse. Just any corpse will do. Just any corpse. Well, a corpse that died in deep spaces because, you know, science. Science. And they, of course, get caught up in investigating the origins of the corpse that they eventually do find. And it is just a brilliant brilliant little novella there's a lot of world building done mm-hmm. in it i think the way in which the various holmesian aspects and lines are adapted are just really yes. lovely so there's a lot in there if you know a lot about sherlock holmes but it right. also stands alone as a really brilliant little science fiction story yeah i was just about to say that too like i i loved all of the the little nods that she gave like if you're like you said if you're familiar with sherlock holmes like there's so many little easter eggs that you can spot from like classic uh Sherlock Holmes and I think that this one also brought me one of my favorite technologies of space opera which Mm. is the brain ship trope 
Oh um, yeah. I I really I really find that that interesting. Um and there's a little bit of a difference between a, an an AI and a brain chip as I understand it. Yeah, I think in this universe the mind ships are actually people right yes. somehow, but like at birth the mind is somehow attached to a ship. Like it's not quite explained in this story how that happened, but it is definitely started life as a person. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's like a line where she says something about how like back in her her core she tastes bile. So like her body is there like and her body is attached to the ship and lives her her life is unnaturally extended through mm -hmm. through the lifespan of the ship. Um what do you like so much about about mind ships, Macy? Do you I think that I like um transformation, right? In general mm. and the questions of like turning into a tree or turning into a spaceship are mm. just really differences in kind. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what would you do if you could be a spaceship? That's interesting. I like the differences in logistics. So mm -hmm. in this universe, obviously, you're right, the mind ship is attached to the ship and obviously the ship is off in space, off planet somewhere, but the mind ship has to have a physical habitat on the planet in which to interact with people. <laughs> so right. she has to pay rent for this like little room where she can have people come in and she can sort of show various, like, I guess, holographic or otherwise, mm -hmm. um, just depictions of things that are not really herself, but kind of are. Like, I got the sense from it that she's sort of showing parts of her actual physical ship mm -hmm. in it, but it's more like seeing CCTV angles changing all the time. Right. And she's definitely not using a human avatar. Right. So you can no. contrast that with something like the Anne Leckie Ancillary Justice series, where the mind ships are I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering this right, they are actually AI, yes. but they then use human avatars in order to do things. Well, not even just avatars, but like actually possessing bodies. These aren't holographic yeah. images they're projecting. They take corpses. Yeah. So what are some of you guys' uh, favorite technology aspects from space operas? I mean, I really love, like in contrast to the mind ship, what I really love is the living ship um like moya for example but also mm -hmm. ones that are more a figurative kind of living ship uh like uh serenity from uh firefly which doesn't have a well there was that one episode uh where maybe she does have a soul um but <laughs> but where the ship is a character and sure. where the the ship itself is something that the the human or at least you know, acting uh, characters of the show are loving and taking care of and treating as much as one of their found family because there's so many found families in this this uh, trope, I guess. I think that's something that I'd love to dig into a little bit deeper, the idea yeah. of spaceship as character. I kind of see there's like three big classes mm -hmm. of like sentient ships. There's like the... I'm an alien creature who is a ship, which Moya kind of is, or is like bonded with the ship. There's yeah. the AI ship, and then there's the I am fueled by a human who is like either a brain in a jar or somewhere on the ship. And then, like you're saying, there's also like our city in ca city as character episode, yeah, a ship which is not sentient but has kind of gained a a, a piece of a, a billing on the masthead of the ensemble and i know we've talked in the past about the city of atlantis and mm -hmm. whether that's a city or a spaceship and i don't know if, if you two were 
all that deep into Stargate Atlantis and have any thoughts I, about that? I was deep enough that I can like be the Miguel and Tulio gif of both. Both. Okay. Both is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it is. I mean, you, know, you think of it as a city, but I'm sure there's at least one episode where it like takes off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, it was originally designed to be able to travel. It doesn't necessarily serve the same purpose as a spaceship, except in the ways that it does, in that it's a way in which our characters are using it as a home base. Mm-hmm. Whereas instead of the spaceship literally taking them from planet to planet, they use the Stargates to go from these different aesthetic planets around. But I think you're right in that Atlantis serves the same purpose as a home that evolves into a character and is not necessarily sentient, but definitely has a presence in the show. Another like presence ship that comes to mind for me i don't think either of you have listened to the clipping album splendor and misery no not yet but it's basically a story of a kidnapped slave who breaks free of his transport uh, and everyone else dies in this attempt to escape and the ai of the ship slowly falls in love with him oh wonderful and it's super cool there's one song in particular from the point of view of the ship and God knows I cannot remember titles today to save my life, but I think you guys might really enjoy it. Oh, cool. Well, if you're talking about space opera and mm-hmm. Shippers character and sentience, you have to talk about the TARDIS. <gasps> oh, you absolutely do. But I never feel like it's a space opera. I do. I feel like it has that sense of moving from aesthetic to aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And maybe you do have some larger, I think possibly the fact that the arcs are never that large scale, mm. like they, they all are usually quite small, except when, you know, it, they come back to earth and, oh no, the world's going to end and blah, 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 blah. But I think if you're thinking about it on a universal scale, each story itself is very large scale for the people who are involved, but it's never that mm. large scale for the doctor and the companion because it's just another story going on but the doctor's whole thing is that everyone is important and every story is large because everybody involved in it is important i think that that my weird feeling which is irrational and i don't think that i'm correct in feeling this but it's sort of instinctive is that space opera needs to be about somewhere besides earth and um so much of doctor who does take place on earth um, I don't think I actually agree with this feeling, but like that's my instinctive sort of reasoning for why Doctor Who isn't space opera because it's too familiar, and I want there to be more of a an aspect of of unfamiliarity or discovery or or so forth. I must admit I haven't watched it for a while, but you know when I was watching sort of the the early early David Tennant run and the Chris Eccleston run, I think my favorite episodes were those that were not on Earth. Right. Where yeah, they actually for sure. committed to weird ass alien landscapes. Yeah, that and makes sense. Strange squishiness. But I, I would still love to talk about the TARDIS a little bit more. I'm sorry, unless Macy, you had a different thing to say. Well, I was noticing we have a bunch more to get to and we're running lower on time. So I wanted to point it back to Freya to talk about my favorite thing. Yeah, I know that we yeah. kind of jumped over you there, Freya, for your no, favorite okay. technology. We just, we just like had a nice deep dive into into spaceships. My favorite thing actually is probably looking at medical technologies. Actually, this might be the first time that you've said something that you like about being a doctor and space. Yeah, and look, and you have to go into it with a little bit of 
suspension of disbelief if you do actually know things about medicine but also it's science fiction i am prepared to especially if we're talking about far future or mm-hmm. you know more science fictiony things just to nod along when they say we have a way of doing this because science i'm like yeah that's fine that's fine as long <laughs> okay. as you don't try and explain it in too much detail and the detail is wrong Mm-hmm. then that's fine um, and obviously there's a lot done in the Volkhozygen saga with reproductive technologies mm-hmm. uh, in a way that shows Bujol has actually thought quite a bit about not necessarily what's realistic but what possibilities could be extrapolated from what we do know about genetics and the technologies of human reproduction yeah. but I also just like the incidental stuff like you know, a phaser that you can set to stun or kill nerve disruptors <laughs> like- in the Volkhozygen saga and also the ways that they have of treating things that would necessarily not be treatable or mm. even bringing people back from the dead, like the um, the Volkhozygen storyline story where Miles dies. And as long as right, you yeah. then remove someone's blood and freeze them very quickly, you can then bring them back from the dead, which is a kind of gruesome but also awesome plot device, I think. Yeah, it is yeah. a bit vampiric. Um, the thing that you said about the... Uh, reproductive technology in Vorkosigan and the way that she's thought about the impact uh, reminds me again of JY's framing of this as science fiction with a humanities background because this mm-hmm. is the sociology of the technology. Like yes. Space opera really digs in and asks what would a society with access to this kind of science be like? Yes. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a major focus of quite a lot of the books in the Vorkosigan saga. Yeah, because you get to see it change the because when uh, in the first book, Shards of Honor, like they do not have access to this this technology at all, mm-hmm. uh, and so over the course of a couple books, you really see how it changes uh, the society and and the social repercussions and so forth. And I think that the second uh, deeper season, the sequel, also deals with the reproductive uh, impact of the androgenesis. Yes. But let's talk about some of the other uh, thematic concerns of space opera. Well, I, I want to go back to what that thing that we had at the very beginning about whether you have to have large stakes. And we sort of talked about how the stakes can be mm-hmm. quite small and interpersonal. I think one thing you do see a lot in space opera, and you see this in Farscape, I have a sense we would have seen it a lot more in Firefly if Firefly had continued, is that slow expansion of stakes from the personal to the large scale which is exactly what yeah. you see in high fantasy where you start with someone possibly not a very important someone <laughs> and you follow their journey from their small village to the wider world to getting involved in the court to getting involved with the fate of nations or the fate of the universe and everything slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger and i think you sort of see that in space opera if you are looking at whether it's an individual or an ensemble starting off as here's someone who has a job as a smuggler or a foot soldier or a pirate or a bounty hunter mm-hmm. and then they become entangled in the larger scale fate of the empire warships things like that uh, because it's a, obviously it's a very good narrative trope to feed your information slowly to your audience mm-hmm. and i don't know if either of you have watched any more of killjoys or like heard about it literally saw the pilot last night yeah, I have gleaned a bit from Tumblr, but that's about it. It's very much this. By late episodes of season three, Dutch is a general. Oh my god, I have to watch the rest of this show. Yeah, you do. Uh-huh. Oh no, she's so cool. She's like, very she's cool. So cool. Oh uh, wow, gosh. 
something that I was wondering uh, when I was reviewing the dot points earlier today, specifically in regards to the differences between space opera and military SF, hmm. um, is Ender's Game space opera? Not for me. I think it, it's often listed as space opera, but yeah, look, I think it is. There's enough about it that there's, you know, there's some stuff happening on planet and there's some stuff mm -hmm. happening with war in space and it's got those high stakes and it's an adventure story. I think it fits into the more old-fashioned definition of space opera. Yeah. What about it makes you think no in your gut? Thinking well, about it in terms of modern-day conception of space opera. I'm going to jump a little bit down for uh, one of my friends when I was asking, like, what do you think space opera is? Um, Kyle Aesteach mentioned that, like, for him, a character in space operas are always in transition and they're never quite home. And it's really about a voyage. And for mm. me, Ender doesn't really go on a voyage uh, because a lot of it, a lot of that war in space stuff is virtual. For me, that really changes things. You know, I think you're right. I think that that is kind of the root of what I am feeling in my bones. But I could totally see it being counted as such as well. Because Vorkosigan's not really about transitions. There are some, there are some books that are about things happening on the spaceships, but it's more about, I mean, there's definitely a sense of home. There's a personal yeah. discovery and you see Miles's journey to accepting what home is for him. But I think, again, it's like Ender's Game can be space opera if Vorkosigan is space opera. Well, but it I hasn't think, got that sense of spaceship as home. I think for me, the Vorkosigan books that feel more like space operas are the ones where Miles is not home. They're the ones where he's in the Setagandan Empire or the ones where he's off being um, a space pirate whatever the heck he is mercenary like those are the ones for me that like kind of feel more yeah. like this whereas whereas like a civil campaign or even some of the ones that are very like pew pew but on the planet don't as much feel space opera to me i think i, I would so. agree with that the volkosian saga has nothing of that sense of spaceship as home or spaceship as mm, character that's true it's, that's, it's, that's it's just a true. way of getting yourself from place to place yes. that's and very yes true. you can have an, uh, an adventure taking place on another planet or some war taking place in space but you're right in that we, when we think of space opera now, there's definitely that traveling in a ship genre that I think Firefly and Farscape and Killjoys are all very much in that category. You know, this makes me wonder, and I'm not sure that I can answer this, whether The Expanse, at least the TV show, is a space opera. It feels to me like there's one storyline, the one where they are on the space dealing with gravity. Uh, wow, that was a sentence. The one where they're on the spaceship, I deal with gravity dealing every with day. <laughs> vacuum, which is going to murderify them. That felt yeah. really space opery. I haven't seen or read The Expanse. I, I ha watched. I watched the first half of the first season mm -hmm. a bit ago, uh, and, and you know the I'm... you know the group that I mean, the people I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while, so I don't remember like specifics of it. So don't like give me a pop quiz or anything. <laughs> But I think that I would, I think I would classify The Expanse as, as a space opera. It has most of the trappings to it, you know, Maybe. like it's, it feels a lot like Killjoys, like Killjoys reminded me a little bit more of The Expanse mm -hmm. than it reminded me of Farscape, for example. Interesting. I want to know which of you put this uh, note about Westerns here, because that sounds super interesting. Yes, because uh, that's one of the things that I discovered when I was looking at the origins of the term is mm -hmm. that it was meant to be related to soap operas which we yep. all know, but also apparently there was a term called horse opera. 
which, which was used for like pulpy formulaic westerns. And I just, yeah. I just, the entire term singing horse horses. Opera. It's singing amazing. horses on a stage. Yeah, uh, is there someone running around behind them with a shovel? This all seems unfortunate. Are they hanging from the rafters? <laughs> and so the reason that these was called space opera is because they were seen as taking a lot of the same kind of plot conventions as westerns. Mm-hmm. Like, and so the genre actually has those roots of these people who might travel around, you know, being a bit morally ambiguous. And there's a lot of different... Sorry, Macy, you're just like... I'm dying. Sorry, sorry, having sorry. I just realised. I just realised. Sure. Is opera the punk of the 90s? Yeah. <laughs> I think earlier than the 90s. Because, like, I think opera was more the punk of, like, the 50s. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. But, like... Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like, that's a great point. Sorry. Yeah. I just, like explosion but freya was saying much smarter things than i was about uh horse operas <laughs> yes horse operas well i think that's why you have this slim subgenre of space westerns which is kind mm. of smushing them together which of which the original as far as i'm concerned was cowboy bebop the anime mm. which has a very western vibe to it mm-hmm. uh, and then firefly took it a step mm-hmm. further and, and I'm sure Killjoys is definitely uh, Killjoys has definitely got a lot of those vibes. Like Westerly and Crash are fairly obviously like aesthetically modeled after bits of the Wild West, uh, particularly Boomtown Gold, like Gold Rush Boomtowns, yeah, um, yeah, the mining town. And but I think that one thing, another thing that is a similarity between some types of space opera and the early american west is the colonization aspect oh yes i think so you, you have were to... having an interesting con- uh, conversation with someone earlier about this macy do you want to tell us yeah, something we about were talking that or... a bit about this with uh jay and jay wolf um but when you are dealing with a space opera that happens on multiple planets you have to answer the question even for yourself as a writer um how did these planets come to be settled Right. You know, um, were they actually barren? Can you write a story of colonizing a, a barren rock and not have it echo back to how people claimed that America was unspoiled and untouched by man when that was totally not the case? There's these echoes that you see that I think go under addressed, but I think maybe we're starting to see a little bit more of that, particularly in stuff like the ancillary books I felt Mm -hmm. did address this. Um, Not exactly in a fun, cheerful, peppy kind of way. Right. I mean, and even if you have a planet that has no life on it, there's still a symbolic violence being done to the planet Mm -hmm. when you start terraforming it, right? Because you're taking this world which has its own kind of ecology um, Mm -hmm. and its own situation. My God, words are hard. Uh, And you you are taking it and ripping it apart and rebuilding it in your own image. And it's like the Star Trek first directive, right? The prime directive. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked talked about that a little bit in our um, Space Empires episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how this interacts with space opera, most of the ones that I can think of, and you think of, you know, Star Wars obviously was the biggest and, and most sort of well-known space opera, but also all the ones that we've talked about with the TV shows here have this sense that the world is big, but it's also linked somehow. And you mm. get a sense for the political situation and 
the pe- the main characters may be ones who are kind of on the edge or rebellious in some way. So you have the peacekeepers in Farscape obviously mm-hmm. are this sort of bad colonial force in some way. They're kind of the equivalent of the Star Wars Empire and they have a mm-hmm. very similar aesthetic, which I found hilarious. <laughs> they're yeah. like, what can, what can we build our spaceship? To look like let's go with angles and red yeah, that's <laughs> that doesn't this... look like a comfortable work situation they're all like standing oh. around their little like consoles and things and it's all just like metal edges yep. like, this doesn't look comfortable oh. or safe get some get some padded leather seats in here come along yeah. but you know you saying this about the connectivity of many space operas is really making me think about Anne McCaffrey um not that I'm frequently not but Anne McCaffrey had this huge range of all sorts of different space operas. Um, And people think Pern when they think of Anne McCaffrey. I think a lot of the time it was such a big um, influence on the whole genre. And Pern is a lost colony. And this is not the only lost colony that she deals with. Um, The Acorna books also are about um, uh, alien species that's not even first contact, but like kind of deliberately remove themselves from the rest of the universe. Um, Nimish's ship deals with going through a wormhole and finding a planet on the edge of nowhere that other people have crash landed on and trying to get back to civilization. And so she kind of deals with these almost islands in the universe. Oh, interesting. It's super cool. And I don't know that I know many other folks who do that. Well, see, to me, that, that is the planetary romance. Because once you've isolated a planet, all the action takes place on that planet. Once you start thinking about the relationship of that planet to the rest of the universe, then it becomes space opera. Kind of, but I'm thinking specifically, like, Nimisha's ship is about a spaceship designer. It's about her testing a spaceship, testing new technology, trying Mm. to travel the galaxy, and then crash landing and, like, maybe half of the book is trapped on a planet. But it's still about her as a galactic citizen you know, and her trying to bring this back into the galaxy and, and rescue herself and her spaceship. Mm. Mm, then I'd agree that space opera. Um, so someone put another wonderful question <laughs> here. I think this was probably, let me guess, Macy? This seems like a Macy yep. kind of question to ask. Yep, I nailed it. <laughs> uh, so Macy has put a wonderful dot point here. What can you do in a space opera that you can't do in multi-kingdom high fantasy on horses? This is brilliant. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Well, sing opera first. Pew, pew, pew. (laughs) Okay, so fantasy fantasy on horses is the same as space opera, because as long as you have wands that go pew, 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 like laser guns. (laughs) We've got some weird genre mishmash coming out of this. I have actually always wanted to write a book. I will freely tell you about this. Like, I have wanted to write a space opera fantasy where there's, like, a fantasy world that gets first contact with some aliens, and it's wizards versus pew-pew-pew laser guns. I will never get around to writing this. Call it War of the Wands. It sounds fun. It's nice. War of the Wands. Very nice. Well, my answer to this was alien world building exclamation mark and i was actually <laughs> thinking back to our alien fucking episode of course about yeah, the course. world building that you can do once you draw in alien beings and mm-hmm. alien races because i think multi-kingdom high fantasy sure you can have your dwarves and your orcs and your mm-hmm. elves and then you can get into some slightly more adventurous or creative fantasy races but with aliens you can just go completely balls to the wall weird from the word go and you can have these people, your main characters, traveling from place to place. You can have interpersonal dynamics between alien species, even within your found family, your ensemble. 
And so I think you can get a lot more variety and weirdness in because when you're doing a multi, like a high fantasy, you're kind of going for not necessarily consistency, but a unifying aesthetic. Would you agree to that? You you made me think of the Philip Pullman um, quadruped elephants on wheels. What? This was the, the third book in, it was The Subtle Knife, the okay. second book in the Philip Pullman, like his Dark Materials and they just it's been like 20 years since i read that it, they <laughs> yeah, just travel to another time. world it's a fantasy book and another world and they make a big point of like divergent evolution happened so long ago that nobody has spines on this world oh my they God, have like I a diamond remember that. instead oh yeah and the elephants evolved to roll around on wheels made of big yes. seeds which was the only way that the, the trees could crack the seeds enough to reproduce i had clearly just like blocked <laughs> that blocked from that my out. memory yeah it was a <laughs> Amazing. Speaking of alien uh, world building, I think that we do just have to give a shout out on the Space Opera episode to the novel Space Opera by Kat Valente, because um, she had some really brilliantly, wonderfully weird uh, aliens in that book. Um, yes, there's I one. Agree. There was one I particularly loved where their whole planet is black, right? It's just like... Vanta black. Vanta Black, right? <laughs> like it's the Vanta Black planet, uh, and the aliens are Vanta Black, and everything is Vanta Black. And uh, I think there was a line about like how hard they were to discover, um, because like <laughs> it was almost impossible to see anything in space. Oh. It was so good, so good. Read that book, everybody. Uh -huh. um, one of my uh, points that I made about this question, going back to the original question, uh, what can you do in space opera? I've always had some weird sort of surreal thought feelings when people talk about borders in space um because like we're talking about we keep coming back to this thing about like scope and scale mm -hmm. like and in space your borders are huge and also three-dimensional because when you're when you're guarding a border on land you don't generally have to worry about up and down. You just worry about forward and backward and side to side, right? Except in space, you have to worry about like the third vector as well. So that's hard. So for me, it feels like a more common thing that you see in space opera is that the borders are closer to what you would see as like ocean borders, not mm. land borders. So you guard a certain circumference out from your property and then it's open sea. Yeah, it's international waters. So you have a spherical border around your planet if you only have one or you have, you know, some other configuration based on where you can put probes and alerts in your asteroid belt. Uh, and probably you have some spots that you can't monitor all that well, but it's really based on where can you get signal. I think space opera uses that kind of idea in terms of, yes, you've got this possible peacekeeping force, this empire force, but you only really have to interact with them when you get to the planets. Mm -hmm. And if you can yeet yourself off into space and be off Thank in, you, quote, Thank international you, waters, then you can just kind of have your weird adventures because there's less of a sense of being in a hostile political situation. Obviously, you can then have space battles and things like that, but that sense that there is a neutral ground because space is so vast allows for those pause notes and those team building adventures that make up a good space <laughs> opera and there's one thing that you've now reminded me of where they did like the whole canon is about um a war over where the borders are between earth and the colonies and this is gundam wing mm. another thing that you're constantly talking about <laughs> But the thing that you find about. is like there's only maybe one or two battles in the whole series that take place in space. 
almost yeah. all of the fighting, because that's where the people you're going to fight are, is either on the colonies, on the space stations, or on Earth. Might just be more fun to draw, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're running low on time, so I just have, like, one quick question. Show of hands, kind of a vote thing, if you will. How does everyone feel, collectively, about retitling this episode, Yeet Me Into Space? <laughs> Yeet me up, Scotty. Yeet, Yeet me, me up, Scotty! Scotty! Oh, God! <laughs> everybody thanks for joining us for this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit i think of all the genres out there space opera is one of those i'd most be happy to find myself inhabiting via some kind of exciting portal nonsense not that i'm necessarily up for being shot at or covered in alien body fluids but the sheer variety and the sense of exploration and fun is really appealing not to mention having a snarky sentient spaceship of my very own and relatedly, for the next episode, two weeks hence on June the 5th, we'll be visiting another topic extremely dear to my heart, magical houses, from moving castles to Hogwarts to haunted houses. So do check that out if it sounds like something you're interested in. And if you'd like to preemptively follow us down that particular bent corner of space-time, one of the tent poles will be the book House of Many Ways by Diana Wynne-Jones. As always, we'd love to hear from you with any questions, comments, or breathless adulations at serpentcast at gmail.com. And we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And do remember we have a fan Discord chat, which is linked on the About the Show page of the podcast website. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, we do have a Patreon, where a small monthly donation allows us to pay our scribes and pay Alex for audio editing, and allows you to access curated rec lists, and very importantly, Alex's drawings of snakes. Sorry, snicks. That's patreon.com slash serpentcast. And by the way, you're, wait for it, out of this world. <laughs> <laughs>